Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. We're going to be looking today at the oil press. You'll see why I chose to entitle our study The Oil Press in just a moment. Now, as is normal for me, as you who have attended here for a while will know, I'm going to give to you some background, remind you of some things, and I'll lead to these verses. And so we'll begin by looking at verse 32. In uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 32, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I, while I pray. So as we've been looking at this chapter, this is the last night that Jesus will spend, and he's ministering to his men. He had shared the Passover with them, and he's continuing to instruct them. Now, I mentioned to you that on the Passover meal, in the Passover meal, uh, a question will be asked of the host. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27, it shall be, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, you, that you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Well, that night, Jesus spent time teaching his men what Passover meant, and his disciples are asking the question, asking questions that night. And in reality, the questions that they're asking of him are going to relate to what is the significance of the Passover. And so the disciples are there asking questions, and Jesus as a host is actually going to answer the most important question that they might have. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 33, he said, Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, notice how he said little children. So during that, that uh, celebration, there would be a question of the children. Children would ask the host. Jesus was the host. He would explain the meaning of Passover, and that's what's taking place. <clears throat> now, as you go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all gives uh, an abbreviated rendition of what took place. Actually, all the Gospel accounts would be abbreviated, but theirs are more so than John's. Because when you look at the Gospel of John, uh, the Gospel of John actually gives to us more information. You, you can see that information in chapters 13 through 17. So let me give you kind of a flow of what was taking place that Mark, Matthew, and Luke did not speak of concerning because in chapters 13 through 17, we see that Jesus gave teachings to his men. He taught his men to be servants. He revealed to them that one of them would betray him. He gave them what he called a new commandment. The commandment was to love one another as he loved them. 
He revealed to Peter that Peter would, along with the others, deny him. He told them that he went before them to prepare a place for them. He told Philip that to see him was to see the Father. He taught them about the importance of prayer. He told them that love for him would be demonstrated by obedience to him. On that night, he gave the most extensive message on the Holy Spirit that he would give. He also told them that he was the true vine. He exhorted them to abide in him. He told them that he was giving them his peace. He said, if they did what he commanded them, then no longer would, would he call them servants, but would call them friends. He told them that they would be persecuted because the world rejected him. In John 16, 32 and 33, he said, Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So when he got to chapter 17, Jesus prays. The chapter is filled with his closing prayer. As he prayed to his father, he said to him that he had been faithful to complete his mission. Then he prayed for his men that he was going to send out that they might evangelize. Then he prayed for us, those who would come to faith through their message. And so by the time you get to chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, well, those verses begin by saying, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So with that introduction, we can begin our study by first looking at verse 32. In verse 32, it says, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now, Gethsemane was an enclosed plot. It's also referred to as an estate. It was a garden. could have been called an orchard. When you're looking at a map, it, it was beyond what is uh, of Israel. It's beyond what is called the Brook Kidron. It's at the foot of the Mount of Olives, about three-quarters of a mile from the eastern wall of Jerusalem. We've been to this, this site many times. Every time we've gone to Israel... We have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll give a very similar Bible study there, not as long as you'll have here, but I, I give a similar study, and there you are on, on Gethsemane in an enclosed garden looking at the eastern gate, and you can see as you're looking to the west, you can see the, uh, you'll see the eastern gate that has been bricked over. and It's actually lower than, than um, the ground level because over the centuries, uh, it, obviously, the, it has uh, accumulated uh, ground and all, but right in front of the eastern gate, and we'll point it out to you, there's a uh, graveyard. There's a Muslim cemetery there they built uh, with an attempt to keep Messiah from coming in the eastern gate. Uh, and so you'll see that while you're in that particular place. And we, we have a Bible study there, and we look at this particular study. And this is a place where Jesus would often spend time. Luke tells us in chapter 22:39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. Now, this garden was actually owned more than likely by one of his disciples, and it would be lent to him for his use. It had become over time a familiar spot for the men. They would uh, come there. They would actually camp out there 
and uh, be ministered to by the Lord. And they came there often. And since they did so, they would have had fond memories of this place. The word Gethsemane means oil press. It's a place where olives were crushed to, to produce the oil. And this is where Jesus is going to agonize in prayer. That's why it's referred to as the oil press. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah, writing over 700 years before Christ, speaking of Messiah, said this. He said, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be agonizing. We'll see that in detail in just a moment. But this is where Jesus is in his own personal oil press. Somebody said this, there's no record in Scripture of Jesus laughing, but there are numerous accounts of his grieving his sadness, and even his weeping. He wept at the grave of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem at the time of his triumphal entry. Jesus knew sorrow upon sorrow and grief upon grief as no other man who has ever lived. But the sorrow he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane on the last night before his crucifixion seemed to be the accumulation of all the sorrows he had ever known. And so Jesus is entering into the wine press. And according to verse 32, as they enter the garden, Jesus says, sit here while I pray. And so what he does is he stations eight of his apostles. Remember, Judas has already left. There's only 11 remaining. So he stations eight of them at the gate or at the entrance of the garden. That's going to secure his privacy because he knows Judas is soon going to be there. And so he stations them there. And uh, in verse 32, it says, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray, verse 33. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Peter, James, and John. Now, why these three? Now, we know that when you look at the Scripture, you're going to see that there are numbers very often associated with Christ. You'll, you'll see multitudes used as it speaks of the multitudes who would come and, and listen to him teach you. You also would see how he appointed 70. So there were what are called by theologians the 70. There were 70 really unnamed, but then you get to the 12. Then you'll sometimes have the three, the two, and then sometimes there's just the one. Peter, James, and John, though, are singled out here. Why is that? Now, Judas has already left to betray him. That leaves 11. Eight of them have been stationed at the gate. That way they could interact with or at least uh, be aware of when Judas came in, as he will. But Jesus takes three of them, Peter, James, and John. Very often they speak of Peter, James, and John as being what is called his inner circle. And it is true that there are those that will work and operate with you in ministry very often that become very close to you because they operate with you quite often. They get to know you better than the others. That's true. But why would he bring Peter, James, and John at this time? Well, remember with me that each of them had vowed to him unshakable faith. They had vowed this before him. They had said that they were going to be true to him in every way. Remember, James and John 
had asked for permission through their mother to uh, be seated, one at the left hand, one at the right, when he entered into his kingdom. Remember that? And Jesus had spoken to them and said to them, they really didn't understand what they were asking. Can you drink of the cup I will drink of? Jesus said to them, and they said, yes, we are able. So they had stated that they had unshakable faith in Christ. We're able to go through what you go through. Of course we can. We want places of honor. Now, the apostle Peter had just told Jesus, though I'll deny you, I will go to prison with you. I will even die with you. And we looked at that recently, how that, that Peter had made that comment. So you have Peter, you have James, you have John. All three of these men had said that they had unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. They had said that they could take whatever he went through. And uh, Peter went so far as to say, though all will deny you, I never will. And so that he had also presented himself as somebody that would never forsake Christ. And so this is something called shallow self-confidence. And that self-confidence put them in great danger of personal failure. Why is that? Because a false estimation of our own strength will always lead to a fall. Take heed. If a man thinks that he standeth, let him take heed, lest he should fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. They had shallow self-confidence. We will die for you. We can take whatever you take. I can drink of that cup. They've all said that. Now, these three men were leaders among the apostles. But Jesus is about to teach them a lesson that they'll one day be teaching others. And the lesson is very simple. It's something we can learn. To face temptation, we should do so through prayer and dependence on God. You see, notice in verse 33 how it says, He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. He began to be troubled. That word troubled in the original language uh, means to be struck with terror. It speaks of being alarmed. The word distressed well, that's a word that speaks of being in great anguish. It also is a word that can be translated with the word depressed. Distressed is the strongest of three Greek words in the New Testament that describes depression. Why would Jesus be described as being in anguish and severe depression? When you consider it, you need to think that on one level, it would be easy to understand why he would be. Judas betrayed him. His disciples will soon forsake him. Peter will deny him three times. He's about to be unjustly accused, tried, beaten, cursed, mocked. He soon will bear the sin of the world through the torture of crucifixion. But to understand this better, we need to remember how he spoke of his death, and he spoke of it often. And when he would speak of it, he didn't show fear, nor did he show concern about dying. As you think about the Gospels and you think about his ministry, from the beginning, he made it clear that he was going to give up his life. John 2.19 says, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. Later on in John chapter 10, verse 17, he said, therefore, my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Even that night, John 17, verse 1, records how Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son 
that your son also may glorify you. The hour has come. It's time. He's prepared. He's ready. He's going to yield up his life. So seeing all of this, why would he now be troubled and deeply distressed? Well, his sorrow and anxiety is his anticipation of his separation from his father. And that will occur when he becomes the sin offering and fellowship for the first time in eternity will be broken. And so he's speaking to his men. And notice again in verse 34, he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. When he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, that's another way of saying, I am consumed with grief. One commentator said that he was saying, if I did not already have another way to die, this would kill me. He's overwhelmed with the fact that he will soon pay the penalty for our sins. Now, ultimately, we know that that was the reason Christ came into the world. We know that. God had predetermined that Jesus would become the sacrifice for sin. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 23, we read that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's how he's going to provide salvation for all who are going to be saved. Jesus was well aware of this, and Jesus embraced this plan. In John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. In Romans 4, Paul wrote it in this way in verse 25. He said, Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses. And later in chapter 5 of Romans in verses 6 through 8, he said, when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He describes us as without strength, ungodly, and sinners, and yet Christ died for us. So, Jesus is preparing himself for that. Notice in verse 34, he says to Peter, James, and John, stay here and watch. Now, the word watch is a word that can be used in a military way. It means be on the alert, stay awake. It means don't fall asleep. In Matthew 26, 38, Matthew says that he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, no doubt they could sense the agony that Jesus was going through. Just looking at him, the way he looked, listening to him as he spoke, the tone of his voice, the words that he was choosing to use, all of this was combining to make them aware of the agony he's going through. They could sense his agony. They could sense his anguish, but they couldn't comprehend it. Now, as he's speaking to them, this reveals to us his humanity. Jesus desired his men to be there with him. He wanted them to sympathize with him and even be a support. And it's sad when you realize that in the ministry of Christ with his men, you read your Gospels, you see the conversations that are recorded. He didn't ask for much on a personal level. 
Yet in this particular case, when he said, watch and pray, stay with me, they failed. They had said they would die with him. They couldn't even stay awake with him. Now in verse 35, it says he went a little farther. He fell on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The garden is dark, but Jesus goes further further in for greater privacy. He and his men had gone into the garden. He had left eight. Peter, James, and John had gone with him a distance further. And now Jesus separates himself a bit. Luke twenty two forty one 41 tells us he's about 30 to 50 yards away from the, the other eight. He now moves a distance from Peter, James, and John, and he's praying fervently. Notice how it says he fell on the ground and he prayed. In verse 35, he prays if it were possible, the hour, this appointed time, if it were possible, this hour might, might pass from him. So what does he do? He prays and he prays, if there's another way, may there be another way. But there was no other way. I remember the first time my wife and I went into the Garden of Gethsemane it was in 1983. We went on a, uh, on a familiarization tour with my pastor, Chuck Smith. And so we went into Israel. I brought my daughter, Anna, who was three months old at the time. And she came with us, and we went on this trip. And as we went on the trip with our pastor, we saw so many sites, but I do remember this particular location, the first time that we ever entered into this region called the Garden of Gethsemane. I still remember it very well. There are stones just all through the pathway there. And uh, Pastor Chuck, his son, uh, Chuck Jr., had given a, a message, and, and Chuck came up after his son had shared a very, a very beautiful message. Chuck walked up, and he, and he closed out that time, and I'll never forget what he said. He, he said, Jesus said, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And then Chuck simply said it like this, and it's, it's riveted in my heart ever, ever since he said it. He said, but there is no other way. There is no other way. There was only this one way. From all eternity, God had made a plan, and that plan was so that we, sinful people that we are, might receive salvation. He had made a plan. He's going to give his only son to suffer sin's penalty. His son is going to be used to rescue fallen mankind. In Hebrews 10, verse 10, it says it like this. The writer writes, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It doesn't require many sacrifices. See, the Jewish way of, of uh, expiation of sin was through constant sacrifice. And they would have on the Day of Atonement that, that major sacrifice. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that, that in the sacrifice, there's a, re, a reminder 
because they have to be repeated yearly, he was pointing out. Yearly, they would have this sacrifice yearly as a constant flow and a constant reminder of man's sinfulness, but it was preparing man for that one final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away sin one time for all time. He doesn't have to be crucified a second or a third or a fourth time. It's that one time that was sufficient. The blood of Jesus Christ's Son cleanses us from all sin, and it doesn't have to be repeated. And so Jesus is going to the cross for that reason. Jesus there, though, is saying, is there another way? There is no other way. Notice in verse 36 how he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. He says, Abba, Father. Abba is the Hebrew, Aramaic Hebrew way of saying, Daddy, Father would be something that the Greeks would use. Abba, Father is a combination of the two. Abba is the common word that a child will use when referring to their daddy. When you go to Israel to this day, you will hear this. The, the little Jewish children will be behind their daddy. I've heard it many times, and you'll hear them, Abba, Abba. And it's, it's not a real formal, it's more, of a, it's more of the word daddy. It's more of a tender, it's an endearing word. And so Jesus is saying that, he's saying daddy to his father, all things are possible for you. That reveals something about our relationship to God because we have been brought into his family through his son. Jesus is referred to in Scripture as the only begotten of the Father. We are adopted. We are not the only begotten. We are adopted. We're adopted into the family of God. It's a different process. We enter in through faith by receiving the, uh, the gift that is given to us, but we are adopted children. Chosen by God. I remember hearing a, a, a story of a, a little girl who was adopted, and she, uh, she was, it was a family gathering and all, and, and one of her cousins was talking to her, and her cousin said to her, um, you were adopted, but I was born to my family, but you, you're adopted. And she was saying it to try and hurt her, her cousin. But the little girl who was adopted said, you know, my mom and my dad have already told me that, that I was in a home and, and that, that one day my mama said that she and my daddy came and, and they looked at all the children that were there and they, they chose me. And my, my, my mama says that we chose you and we have loved you, but you are our baby. We chose you to be ours. So she said, you know, my mama and my daddy, they chose me but your parents, they're stuck with you. <laughs> we were chosen. Yeah, we were chosen. The Lord chose us, and we've been adopted into his family. In Romans 8, 15, it says, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has set, sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Before you really understood the love of God, it's very possible that you looked at God as just a, a judge of some sort, holy, and, and he is, and righteous, and he is, but distant, but distant. And perhaps you had a fear of him to the point that you tried to guard your thoughts and guard your actions, tried to be good, and all of that, and, and it just got stress-filled. That's how it was for me. 
I tried to be very good as a child. And my mom and dad had pictures of me and my brother. We'd be at, at, at different little house parties and all. And we have pictures of my brother and me sitting there like, you know, two little, little angels and all. And because and, I wanted to be good because I, I'd, I'd heard some things by going to, to catechism classes that, 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 that you need to be good for God to accept you. And I tried to be good until I was 15. At the age of 15, I, I said, I'm tired of being good and not having fun. And that's how I thought. And so that's when I got into alcohol and drugs. I didn't know that God loved me. I thought I had to do something to make him love me. I thought I had to be good. I had to do the right things. I had to think the right thoughts and all of that. And at a certain early age, I came to realize that none of that was possible. I didn't realize that God came to save sinners. I didn't know that. I didn't understand that. That's why Paul could say that. He said he was saving sinners. And Paul went on to say, of whom I am chief. And so I came to realize the grace of God. And so instead of just speaking of him as, and as he is, almighty God, I could actually have a tenderness as I, as I speak to him. And the word Abba, it, it comes into play. Um, I've said this before in the past. I'll just say it briefly. My, my father, um, all my life from the time that I can remember speaking to him until the, the last conversation I ever had with him, I never called my father dad. I called him daddy because that was our relationship. It was tender. It was, a, it was a love that a son had for a father. So I finally get it. I finally can understand that. Though I don't refer to him in that way, uh, perhaps I would if I'd simply used the name Abba. That would be saying the same thing. I still speak to him as my father, kind of like the Greeks would have, but he's my daddy. There's a tenderness involved in that relationship. And that's what you're seeing here. Forgive me the emotions. They're stirred up as I think of this. All things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. All things are possible. Father, many years ago, Abraham, who was called Abram and Sarai, who later was called Sarah, well, Sarah, many years ago, centuries ago, was unable to conceive. But in a miraculous way, Abraham at the age of 100 and Sarah at the age of 90, well, they were given strength to conceive, and she bore a child, and that child was named Isaac. Isaac, in Hebrew, is translated laughter. Because she had laughed in unbelief, <laughs> when God had said, this time next year, your wife will have a son, Sarah, listening through the tent, had overheard the conversation Abraham was having with, with God. She laughed, shall I at my age have pleasure, the pleasure of having a child? And that's where the Lord spoke to her. Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. Oh, yeah, you did lie, her pants on fire. You lied. <laughs> you will have a son. His name shall be Isaac. Laughter. Every time you call his name, you'll remember the laughter that you had when I gave you that promise. That, even though they had another son through a handmaiden, Hagar, God spoke to Abram and said to him, take your son, your only son. Now, wait a minute. You have Ishmael too. 
No. Ishmael is a son of the flesh. Isaac is a son of promise. Take your son, laughter, and offer him to me in a place that I'll appoint for you. And the scripture tells us in Genesis 22 that Abram saddled his donkey, took with him servants. And so the question is asked, I, I, I see the wood and, and the, the implements for sacrifice, but I don't see the offering. And then Abram said, God will provide himself a lamb, which was a prophetic word concerning Messiah who was to come. We all know the story how that Abram placed his son on the altar. Hebrews tells us he knew that he had received him when it was impossible. And therefore, God could deliver him back. It was a hope of resurrection. He trusted God. This was the son of promise. When he raised his, his hand to sacrifice his son, God said, stop. And now I see, now I see your faith is real. And there was a, a ram that was provided with this, was caught in a thicket, and that ram was offered. And so Jesus says, all things are possible. Is there another way? Is there any way you could do the same for me? Is there another way for this to occur? But he'd do the answer, no. There's no other way. He says in verse 36, take this cup away from me. This cup that he's speaking of represents God's wrath, his, his judgment. It symbolizes the suffering that Jesus will soon endure on the cross. The cup speaks of God's wrath. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51, 17, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Take this cup from me. But he goes on in verse 36, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I'm totally submitted to your plan of redemption. The psalmist said it like this in reference to Messiah, Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In John 6, 38, Jesus said it like this. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to be the lamb. I'm willing to die. Somebody said that Jesus disarmed death by burying its shaft in his own heart. Well, Luke, the physician, gives us greater insight into what's taking place. You see, he was a doctor and he speaks of what Jesus endured in Luke 22, 43 and 44. There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He was in such stress and agony that he was pouring out blood and sweat. In answer to his prayer, God dispatched an angel to minister to him. Luke tells us that the angel strengthened him. The angel invigorated him. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 7 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. While well, he's praying and he's being cared for. Well, in verse 37, 
He came and found them sleepy. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. So he speaks to the apostle Peter in verse 37. Notice that. Notice that he refers to him by the name Simon. Simon is his given name. John 1, 41 and 42 says that he had changed his name. It says he, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Well, in verse 37, he found all three of them sleeping. But notice he, he spoke first to Simon. Now, this is the one who had said, though all forsake you, I will never fall away. So he's the first one who's being addressed. And Luke says, uh, gives us insight into why they were asleep. In, in, in Luke twenty-two forty-five, when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep. They were exhausted from sorrow. Some of us in this room understand what that means, that the, the burden that you're carrying is so grave, so deep, so heavy, that sometimes you actually get sleepy, and that's what was taking place with them. The sorrow affected them. They're experiencing deep sorrow. And that was used, by the way, by the enemy to tempt them to sleep, making them unprepared. And that's why in verse 38, Jesus said, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is willing. The flesh is weak. Watch and pray. Be alert. Be alert about the devil's plans. Pray for God's help. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In 1 Peter 4, 7, he went on to say, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. You see, you might be physically awake, but you're spiritually asleep. Spiritual vigilance is not occasional. It's constant. The enemy, the enemy never rests. The enemy never sleeps. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.17 is important. Pray without ceasing. Well, verses 39 and 40, again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. When he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to answer him. They were weighed down with sleep. They weren't praying. While Jesus was separated in prayer, his men were sleeping on the job. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. He warned them, yet the disciples were still not listening. They yielded to their natural appetites, and they were spiritually unprepared. They were not heeding his word. We sang a moment ago prior to the teaching a song, and I noted it. It says, I believe every word you said. And I suspect that... Um, that the men would have said the same thing, I believe every word you have said. We, the church, just sang that, I believe every word you said. But the fact is, beginning with me, sometimes I wonder, because during that song, in the first service especially, I was thinking of it, Lord, do I really believe everything you said? Do I really act and live as if I believe every word you said? You see, they listened to so many sermons. They even gave their own sermons. They, they saw so many works. They even performed their own works. 
they were there celebrating in a way that was beyond everybody. They were so close and so deep with him. They weren't the 70. They weren't just the 12. They were now the 11. Peter, James, and John were the three. They had a close relationship. Uh, James and John were actually related to Christ. They were cousins. So there was a deep connection. And yet, do I really believe every word that you said? Because Jesus had said before the the rooster crows this night, you will deny me three times. I would go to prison for you. I'd even die for you is what the response was. So said the rest of them. No, they weren't listening to what he had to say. And Jesus is concerned for them. The circumstances leading to his arrest and, and, and all is, is going to overwhelm them. Not only will Jesus be taken, but his men are also going to become targets. And that was why that night Jesus had prayed in John 17, verse 11. He had prayed for them. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me. He had prayed for them, but he also commanded them to pray for themselves. Seeking the Lord and relying on his help will provide security. Like it says in Psalm 17, verse 5, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word I do hope. Well, verse 41 says, He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us, let us be going. Behold, see. My betrayer is at hand. Judas is approaching him at that moment. So he says to him, it's enough. The time has come. My betrayer has arrived. You didn't prepare yourselves by prayer, and now you're going to reap the results. When he said in verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Notice with me that Jesus went out to meet the enemy. He didn't have them seeking to find him. He sought them out because he was ready through prayer and, and dedication to the will of the Father. He was ready to meet the enemy head on, but his men weren't. We're going to see that next time we get together, his men were not. All this self-confidence, all these words that they spoke to the Messiah, to their, their master, all the time that they spent with them. Imagine that for a moment. The walking, the hours, the camping out next to him, the amazement when they would see him open the eyes of the blind, the amazement when, when Peter walked on water, when they saw him raise the dead on no less than three occasions, raise the dead. They heard words that were so articulate, so eloquent, so deep. Sometimes they even had to ask him, what do you mean by that? Can you please explain it to us? We don't get it. We've been with you in this seminary for so long. We still don't get it, Jesus. And so he'd explain to them in a personal way. John was so close to this man that even that night he had placed his head on the bosom of Christ and had spoken to him as one who loved. He, could, he had his head on the chest of Jesus listening to the heartbeat of God. Think about that. Think about that. 
You listen to the heartbeat of God. And yet Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be ready. Your enemy is prowling like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's why in hindsight, Peter could say, you need to pray. You need, be, you need to be alert. And by the way, I'll close with this. Don't think that the enemy isn't after you because he is. Now, I'm not trying to encourage you to paranoia so that you're walking every step, turning around to see if he's going to be there. So you see, listen, when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, before you were on the enemy's side, now you're on God's side. Do you think he's neutral about you? He hates you. The depth that God has love for you, Satan has hatred for you. He steals, he kills, he destroys. His great pleasure is in the destruction. He's a murderer, Jesus said, from the beginning. He's a liar from the beginning. And he's still prowling for you. Watch and pray. Listen, the problems we're having in the United States, as bad as they are with some of the things that we see going on and the great concern all of us share, the battle is not just with flesh and blood. We are not going to elect righteousness. Does that mean that we should not pursue it? Does that mean we shouldn't do our best to bring people into office who, who best reflect the uh, righteousness that we'd love to see America have? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We should vote, and we should be involved, and we should do all of those things, of course. But the answer is not going to be electing somebody. Because even the best person who loves the Lord can be tempted by the power that is offered them in offices. That's why we pray for those who are in elected positions. That's why we pray for them, because the temptation to power is the first temptation that Eve herself was deceived by. You shall be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. The temptation to power, to knowledge, to inside information, to control, it's still with us. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. We, we, we are actually in a spiritual war, and that's why the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God. So we have the, the our loins are girt with truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have a helmet of salvation. Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have the sword of the spirit, and we have the shield of faith, and that's what we use in these battles, and that's why Jesus said we need to be awake and alert because our enemy desires to destroy us. So instead of me yielding to the carnal desire to try and somehow control my own destiny, I ask God to go before me that he might be my shield and my great strength, that he might give to us victory in Christ, and that's how it works. And so Jesus is speaking and saying to his men, watch and pray. You have the desire, but you don't have the power. Be on the alert. Your enemy wants to destroy you. They fell asleep on the job, but Jesus didn't. He went out to meet the enemy, but as we'll see, they fled. I don't want to be one who runs. I want to stand 
as a, in the position of the victor because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Because that's what Paul said, having done all, stand. Stand as a victor. Be prepared for the war. But remember the last page of the Bible where it states, we won in Jesus Christ. Never forget that. We win. We win. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.